the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. And it's a pleasure to welcome all of you here this morning as we uh, open our conference, How Naked a Public Square. Since the Supreme Court's decision in the uh, case of Everson against Ewing Township, which arose just uh, up the street from where we are now, shortly after the Second World War, Americans have debated the role of religion in American uh, public life. This is, of course, not a new discussion since the discussion of the role of religion uh, in politics in the United States goes back to the founding of the Republic and, indeed, uh, even earlier. But an important moment in the debate was the publication in 1984 of Richard John Newhouse's book, The Naked Public Square. The title's image powerfully expressed the opposition of many Americans to the idea vigorously affirmed by other Americans that religion should be a purely private matter, one that is not permitted to intrude, or at least to intrude too much, uh, in the domain of politics or public life. Uh, the current presidential campaign, together with debates regarding the Pledge of Allegiance and the Ten Commandments uh, and the controversy regarding present and proposed faith-based uh, initiatives, offers compelling evidence that the issue continues to be alive uh, with us today. The 20th anniversary of the publication of The Naked Public Square this year offers a fitting occasion uh, for the James Madison program together with our co-sponsors, Baylor's Center for Religious Inquiry Across the Disciplines and the American Public Philosophy Institute uh, to promote the intellectual uh, exchange of ideas uh, on this topic by sponsoring a, con a conference that brings together a wide, a range, a wide range of uh, voices representing different disciplinary uh, perspectives uh, and points of view. I wish to thank particularly uh, our speakers and uh, Professor Christopher Wolf of the American Public Philosophy Institute uh, and uh, Professor Byron Johnson of Baylor's program for uh, a Center for uh, Religious Inquiry Across the Disciplines. Uh, it's now my pleasure to welcome Professor Hadley Arcus, uh, who is Professor of uh, Jurisprudence, Nate Professor of Jurisprudence at Amherst. Uh, college and a member of the Board of Consulting Scholars of the James Madison Program uh, to introduce our opening panel and our very eminent opening speaker, Professor Arcus. Thank you. We're imposing an IQ test already in this morning to see who could find their way to this uh, <laughs> hall. Robbie and I, have experienced here, had trouble finding it. We finally had to look for the, an American consulate to help us make our way. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my privilege this morning to present to you an engaging panel in opening this conference, but it's also my office this morning to say something briefly about the ground of the problem or the framework in which this problem comes to us. Lincoln famously said at Gettysburg, four score and seven years earlier, this nation was brought forth on the basis of a proposition. And of course, if we count back 87 years from Gettysburg, we don't land at 1787 with the Constitution. We land at the Declaration of Independence. The Republic began, as Lincoln understood, with the articulation of that proposition, that principle, what he called the father of all principles among us, that proposition from which everything else radiates, all men are created equal. But that first premise on the natural rights, the natural quality of human beings, was, un was an understanding, reflected understanding, placed within a framework of nature. So as the argument ran, uh, we make our way to the equalities among human beings by beginning with the inequalities that exist in nature. 
And so the understanding was, no man was by nature the ruler of other men in the way that God was by nature the ruler of men, and men were by nature the rulers of dogs and horses. And so if a state of affairs has arisen in which some men exercise power over others, that situation could not arise from nature. It had to arise from convention or consent. James Wilson expressed the common sense of the matter in his first lecture on jurisprudence in 1790. He said, there were indeed circumstances under which the rule of a superior would be eminently justified, and that was the rule of him who is supreme, but among those sublunary beings, those somewhere between angels and animals, there could be, as Wilson said, neither superiority nor dependence. The Declaration proclaimed the natural rights of human beings, but within a framework that begins with an appeal, not to rights, but to the laws of nature and nature's God, and ends with an appeal to the supreme judge of the universe. And as Michael Novak points out, in between, the Declaration is simply pervaded by a Hebrew metaphysic with a reference to God the Creator and God the Judge. Now this would all be, could be put aside as mere rhetoric, except that it has a direct practical import. Uh, we may recall the Dred Scott decision where Justice McLean, leaning in in dissent, said, you may think that black man is chattel, but he's a creature made in the impress of his maker. He's amenable to the laws of God and man, and he is destined to an endless existence. McLean could understand that that black man had an intrinsic dignity, the source of rights of intrinsic dignity, because we thought he was made in the image of something higher. And that may explain indeed why we think that forked creature who conjugates verbs is also the bearer of rights. And on the other hand, though, curiously, the religious tradition itself seems to have cast up the strongest alternative to religious understanding as the grounds of our moral judgments. As Aquinas said, we know the divine law through revelation, but the natural law we know through that reasoning that is natural to human beings, accessible to human beings as human beings. And so, of course, in that famous fragment that Lincoln wrote for himself, which he imagines himself engaged in a dispute with an owner of slaves, he's imagining him saying, why do you make a slave of the black man? Is it because he's less intelligent than you? Beware, the next black man who comes along more intelligent than you may enslave you. Is it because he is darker than you? Beware again, the next white man who comes along with a complexion even lighter than yours may enslave you. It was simply a model of principled reasoning. At no point was there an appeal to revelation or faith. It was an argument that could be understood across the religious divide. And that, of course, gives rise to the argument that we can, we can be moral people and reason about moral things without ever making an appeal to faith and revelation but that itself is also one of the creations, offshoots of our own religious tradition. So we understand we can reason about moral things without invoking faith, and yet we are still left with the question of how else to explain how that forked creature becomes the bearers of rights, especially if we move to the facile assumption that we no longer have need of that author of the moral law and of those beings 
who can give and understand reasons over matters of right or wrong. Now, it would be hard to find anyone who could bring to this problem a more cultivated reflection on the American tradition than Arthur Schlesinger. And for me, the office of presenting him to an audience here stands as the rarest of privileges, anchored in memories running far back. I hope you'll indulge a personal account. As a youngster growing up in Chicago, awakening to an interest in politics, I was enamored of Adlai Stevenson, who was drafted for the nomination when I was 12 years old. I became aware of Arthur Schlesinger then as, as a young professor at Harvard, working on speeches for this literate man. And when Stevenson lost the second time, I was heartbroken. I was drawn to an interest in the most glamorous and, and astoundingly successful Democratic president. So apart from the interest in girls and baseball, I would read everything I could read about FDR. And then a treasure came up in 1957. Professor Schlesinger published the first volume in the age of Roosevelt, The Crisis of the Old Order. And I bought that book at the age of 17, spent the whole summer reading it, learning new words, many parts of that. Many parts of that book are still etched vividly in my memory. I would snap up all of the succeeding volumes. Several years later, when I was in college, I was recruited as an aide to one of my professors during the arrangements for the annual meeting of the historians in Chicago. And in that post, I spotted Professor Schlesinger attending a lecture by Isaiah Berlin and having in hand as his guest, Adlai Stevenson. Of course, I contrived the slimmest excuse to approach the professor, representing myself as an aide for the convention and snatching the chance to have my first conversation with my hero while I was hoping he run again in, in 1960. Now, I'm sure this encounter is as vividly etched in the memory <laughs> of Professor Schlesinger as it is in mine. I'm sure he'll recall it was in Chicago December 1959. <laughs> Professor Schlesinger, of course, went on to offer advice and serve in the administration of President Kennedy, who had overlapped with him at Harvard, or if it was his classmate, I can't recall. And of course, he's kept up over the years a steady current of books and essays. Now, sometimes we have a sense that we find ourselves in company without realizing of a noted academic, and we find ourselves falling into constructions like, what is it you write, Mr. Hegel? <laughs> There's no need to ask what Professor Schlesinger writes. <laughs> He's written at length and written well with many two Pulitzers. He is also a late inspiration for this program. He was really quite generous in accepting this offer to come in so late, and we well understood that he may arrive without being able to provide a text in advance. But we have, as discussants, two estimable, agile, commentators in George McKenna and Jeannie Heffernan who can take in the paper by ear and respond in sentences and paragraphs. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is an especially lovely occasion for me to, to, to invite Professor Schlesinger to the podium. Would you join me in inviting him? I appreciate Professor Arcus's friendly and nostalgic 
memories of the past. Any man who wears a bow tie inspires confidence. (laughs) (laughs) I'm invited to speak today about the history and contemporary impact of religion on politics. George W. Bush is the most aggressively religious president in American history. Is that a, that provokes two questions. Is that a good thing for democracy? Is that a good thing for religion? Religion is certainly a good thing for George W. Bush. He would not be president today unless a vivid religious experience had charged his life with new meaning, direction, and discipline. His first 40 years had been a wasteland of aimlessness, buffoonery, business failures, excessive drinking, redemption and transformation through commitment to Jesus made him a man and a a, a leader. His parents were conventional Episcopalians and for a while young George had conventionally attended the Presbyterian Church in Midland, Texas. Marriage and Laura involved him with the Methodists. But he missed something, as he said, on the inside. In the summer of 1985, while visiting his parents in Kennebunkport, George W. took his famous walk along the rugged main shore with Billy Graham. Are you right with God? Graham asked. No, Bush answered, but I want to be. That weekend, Bush later recalled, my faith took on a new meaning. It was the beginning of a new walk where I would recommit my heart to Jesus Christ. He was born again. When his father ran for president in 1988, young George served as informal liaison with the religious right. Subsequently, turning to politics, he was elected governor of Texas. In 1999, he decided to run for president himself. Asked on television about his favorite philosopher, he replied, Christ, because he changed my heart. As his religiosity gained confidence, he said at the Southern Baptist Convention, I believe that God wants me to be president. The Almighty, working through a gang of five on the Supreme Court, delivered the White House to George W. Bush in the year 2000. American presidents are routinely God-fearing and God-invoking, but our presidents have rarely asked for divine guidance on secular issues. The framers omitted the word God from the Constitution. Benjamin Franklin spoke for many of his contemporaries in a letter a month before he died to Ezra Stiles, the president of Yale, a letter, as I say, shortly before he died in 1788. I have some doubts as to Christ's divinity, he wrote, though it is a question I do not ever dogmatize upon Having never studied it, 
and think it needless to busy myself with it now when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with much less trouble. (laughs) (laughs) The faithful regarded the first three presidents as insufficiently pious. Washington was a nominal hangman who never stayed for communion. John Adams was a Unitarian, which Trinitarians spurned as heresy. Jefferson denounced as an atheist, was actually a deist who produced an edited version of the New Testament with the miracles eliminated. The faithful, as I say, regarded the first three presidents as insufficiently pious. Alexander Hamilton, in his last pessimistic years, when he pronounced the Constitution as a frail and worthless fabric. In his last pessimistic years, he conceived the project of a Christian constitutional society. There were few takers in the age of Jefferson. In 1815, Lyman Beecher, emerging as a Presbyterian leader, proposed that a religious instructor be set up for every thousand persons. A proposal that provoked Jefferson into a violent violent diatribe against what he called the pious swinging, whining, the hypocritical canting, lying, and slandering of what he called the priesthood. The Sabbatarian controversy of the 1820s revived the religious community as a pressure group in American politics. The issue of Sunday mails affronted the devout, much as same-sex marriage affronts the devout today. Sunday evangelicals felt should be reserved for praying and sermonizing. Secular activities could be banned. They sought the repeal of Jeffersonian Jeffersonian law of 1810 requiring Sunday postal service requiring each postmaster to spend an hour a day on an hour on Sundays in the post office. In 1827, the Reverend Ezra Stiles Ely called for a Christian party in politics. The next year, the pious formed a general union for promoting the observance of the Christian Sabbath. This roused the Jacksonians, paid no attention, by the way, to the portrayal of the Jacksonians by Walter Russell Mead and Anatole Levin as driven by evangelical and fundamentalist emotions. Quite the contrary, the free thinkers of the time were, were all Jacksonians. Above all, Colonel Richard M. Johnson, the putative killer of Tecumseh, who is chairman of the Senate Post Office Committee, submitted a report in 1828 declaring that it was unconstitutional for the federal government to promote Sabbath observance by outlawing Sunday mail delivery. Johnson said, the line cannot be too strongly drawn between church and state, pointing out that some 
Americans celebrated Sabbath on Saturday rather than Sunday, Colonel Johnson said, the commission, the Constitution regards the conscience of the Jew as sacred as that of the Christian. It is not the legitimate province of the legislature to determine what religion is true or what is false. Our government, he, think, he said, is a civil and not a religious institution. The Johnson Report was eventually printed on satin, framed and hung in parlors, office, offices, and bar rooms across the land. As for Colonel Johnson, Jackson rewarded him by making him vice president for his successor, Martin Van Buren, despite the technical handicap in those benighted days of Johnson's living with and having daughters by a black woman without concealment. Religion nonetheless had an impact on the politics in this period. Ministers made a vital contribution to the abolitionist movement as the social gospel later made a vital contribution to the progressive movement. But let us not forget the ministers who defended slavery. They had the better biblical case because the Old Testament celebrated Israeli Jewish leaders who, defend, who owned slaves and Jesus Christ never in the New Testament condemned slavery. Indeed, most of the religious denominations split before the secular political parties. During the Civil War, ministers sought to repair the omission of God from the Constitution. The convention of Protestant ministers, led by the great Horace Bushnell, drafted an amendment inserting references to Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But President Lincoln declined to back the Christian Amendment. In the 19th century, all presidents, of course, professed belief in the Heavenly Father, though religion did not occupy a major presence in their lives. Lincoln was a great exception, and even he protected the Constitution from sectarian amendments. Nor did our early presidents exploit their religion for political benefit. I would rather be defeated, said James A. Garfield. I would rather be defeated than make capital out of my religion. Many 19th century voters did not care, much care whether politicians or men of faith. James G. Blaine, for example, picked up picked uh, Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll, who was known as the great agnostic and the famed critic of religion. He uh, Blaine picked Ingersoll to nominate Blaine in the Republican Convention of 1876. A 20th century equivalent of Colonel Ingersoll would be hissed off the platform at Republicans' conventions today. There have been presidents of ardent faith in the 20th century, 
Woodrow Wilson had no doubt that God had anointed the United States and himself for the salvation of suffering humanity. Jimmy Carter, like the younger Bush, was born again. Bill Clinton was never in better oratorical form than in a church, especially a black church. But neither Wilson nor Carter nor Clinton especially uh, applied religious tests to public policy, nor did they rely on the churches to mobilize voters on their behalf. These are the standards that President Bush had systematically violated. George Bush's conversion experience was unquestionably authentic, but his faith also provides political benefits. There is no question that, that Doug Mead, uh, Assemblies of God evangelist, there is no question that the president's faith is real, genuine, and there is no question that it's calculated. The rise of Protestant evangelicals as a political force has restructured American <coughs> politics, and President Bush is taking full advantage of the millennial fervor. When I was young, Protestant evangelicals were a disdained minority, made sport of by H.L. Mencken as, as natives of the Bible Belt. Born-again fundamentalists could be relied upon to be anti-Catholic and anti-Semitic. They had led the campaign against Al Smith in 1928 and John F. Kennedy in 1960. They had lynched Leo Frank in Georgia in 1915. But in recent years, the Protestant religious right has forged an alliance with right-wing Catholics over abortion and with right-wing Jews over the Holy Land. Such alliances have made the Protestant evangelicals more respectable and more politically potent. Religious st statistics are notoriously unreliable, but it may be, as the Pew P uh, Center of People in the Press asserts that evangelicals now outnumber mainline Protestants. In the late 1980s, according to the Pew Center, 41% of Protestants identified themselves as born-again or evangelical. Today, 54% of Protestants identify themselves that way. Evangelicals made uh, make up, is estimated, 30% of the population, and with their allies among right-wing Catholics and right-wing Jews, close to 40% of the electorate. Karl Rove, Bush's political wizard, is evidently worried about the, the less than maximum turnout among the evangelicals. Bush's father had alienated the religious right. One reason for his defeat in 1952, 1992, and the son is determined not to repeat the father's mistake. According to evangelicals, Four million of their brethren did not vote for Bush in 2000.
The Wall Street Journal recently had an article headlined, Mobilization Plan, Bush's Big Priority, Energize the Conservative Christian Base. The Wall Street Journal described the weekly conference call between the White House and conservative Christian leaders. The New York Times said that the Bush campaign is asking conservatives, asking conservative churches and churchgoers to do everything they can to turn their church churches into bases of support without violating campaign laws or jeopardizing their tax exempt status. Under the head, heading coalition coordinator duties, the Bush-Cheney campaign schedule lists 21 objectives, 22 objectives, including sending the campaign their directories, receiving backlists of all non-registered church members, talking to their senior groups, asking pastors to hold the citizenship Sunday, recruiting up to 10 church members as volunteers, and posting reminders, reminders of the duties of Christian citizens to, to vote. This is not something that Woodrow Wilson had, had done. Bush himself told the White House Conference of Religious Organizations that the federal government had given more than a billion dollars in 2003 to faith-based organizations. It is indeed a far cry from James A. Garfield, who refused to exploit religion for political benefit, and justifies the rebuke by Ron Reagan at his father's funeral when he said that President Reagan had, I quote, never made the fatal mistake of so many politicians wearing his faith on, the, on, his, on his sleeve to gain political advantage. The Bush presidency is the first faith-based presidency in the history of the United States. Bush made his first executive order as a President, it was to set up in the White House the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. He has established faith-based offices in seven executive agencies, including the Department of Justice, the Labor Department, the Department of Agriculture, and the Department of Health and Human Services. To affirm his own heartfelt faith, incidentally to his swage, Carl Rose's worry about the born-again vote, our president has thus embraced the evangelical program. George Bush is unique among American presidents in his extensive application of religious tests to secular problems. This explains why 48 American Nobel laureates recently issued a statement calling for a regime change in Washington. Stem cell research, the opposition 
to which so disturbs Nancy Reagan. Stem cell research promises to expedite cures for Alzheimer's, diabetes, AIDS, Parkinson's, and other diseases. But the evangelicals are against it, and so is George Bush. Global warming, abortion, even science in national parks, are affected by the evangelical impact. Ideological restrictions are especially burdensome on, on women. Bush's rigid opposition to abortion colors every decision affecting family planning. In July, the administration for the third year withheld $34 million from the United Nations Population Fund on the ground that while the UN agency does not condone abortion, it cooperates with Chinese programs that may involve abortion. The fund cutoff penalizes poor women around the world. The tragedy of 9-11 deepened Bush's relationship with its creator. On matters of life and death, Bush radiates a calm but disquieting certitude. His faith-based presidency encourages absolutist black and white thinking, either you are for us or for the terrorists, no room for nuance or doubt. There's no doubt in my mind we are doing, we're doing the right thing, Bush told Bob Woodward. Not one doubt. Friends attributed to his religious faith this capacity to confront grave trouble with serenity. Woodward, who interviewed Bush for nearly four hours to write Bush at War, came away with the distinct impression that the president was casting his mission and that of the country and the grand vision of God's master plan. Bush told Karl Rove, I'm here for a reason, and this is going to be how we're going to be judged. A senior aide commented to Woodward that the president really believes he was placed here to do this as part of a, a, as part of a divine plan. In a later book, Plan of Attack, Woodward reports that he asked Bush whether he had discussed the invasion of Iraq with his father. After all, the elder Bush had already fought a war against Iraq and Saddam Hussein, and it would have been the most natural thing in the world for a son to seek his father's counsel. Instead of disposing of the question as a private matter between father and son, the younger Bush insisted that he had not consulted his, his father. He was a wrong father to appeal to in terms of strength. Bush told Woodward, there is a higher father that I appeal to. The higher father evidently tells him what he most wants to hear and imparts, and imparts a messianic drive to his discourse. Bush has remade himself through redemption and transformation, and he may well regard it as his God-given destiny to redeem and transform the Middle East. 
He sees his administration as agents chosen by God to combat evil and establish virtue. Of course, the terrorists think, think the same way. Of all religious, of all American presidents, Lincoln had the most acute religious insight. Though not formally enrolled in any, any domination, he brooded constantly over the mystery of the Almighty. He was intensely aware of the unfathomable distance between the supreme being and erring mortals, and he would have agreed with Hawthorne that to claim knowledge of the divine will and purpose was the unpardonable sin. Self-righteousness was the existential curse. How Lincoln would have rejoiced Mr. Dooley's definition of a fanatic. A fanatic, Mr. Dooley said, Mr. Dooley, by the way, was Finley Peter Dunn, the turn of the century, of the 20th century, Irish-American Irish wit. A fanatic, Mr. Dooley said, does what he thinks the Lord would do if he only knew the facts in the case. <laughs> The most dangerous people in the world today are those who persuade themselves that they are executing the will of the Almighty. Lincoln summed it up in his second inaugural. Both warring halves of the Union, he said, had read the same Bible and prayed to the same God. Each invoked God's aid against the other. Let us not judge Let's judge not that we be not judged, as Lincoln said, for the Almighty has his own purposes. Thurlow Weed, the boss of New York, sent Lincoln a letter of congratulation. Men are not flattered, Lincoln replied, by being shown that there has been a difference of purpose between the Almighty and them. Deny it, to deny it, however, in this case, is to deny that there is a God governing the world. It is a truth which I thought needed to be told, and whatever of humiliation there is in it falls most directly on myself. I thought others might afford for me to tell it. Reinhold Niebuhr was a great American theologian of the 20th century. Writing about Lincoln's second inaugural, Niebuhr said, this combination of moral resoluteness about the immediate issues with a religious awareness of, a, of another dimension of meaning and judgment must be regarded as almost a perfect model of the difficult but not impossible task of remaining loyal and responsible toward the moral treasures of a free civilization on the one hand, while yet having some religious vantage point over the struggle. We, on the, on the other, as all God-fearing men of all ages, are never safe against the temptation of claiming God too simply as a sanctifier of whatever we most fervently desire. Is the evangelical domination of the Bush administration good for democracy? 
democracy presupposes negotiation and compromise. Evangelical religion deals in non-compromisable absolutes. Perhaps George W. Bush should read Lincoln and Niebuhr in order to understand the limits on human knowledge of the divine purpose. Is it, is it even good for religion? Let Andrew Jackson answer that question. Pressed by clergy to proclaim National Day of Fasting to combat a cholera epidemic, President Jackson replied that he could not do as they wished. Without, he said, without feeling that I might in some degree disturb the security which religion now enjoys in this country in its complete separation from the political concerns about, of the general government. Thank you. Much to discuss. I can, I can see. Uh, yes, we're going to go. Um, of course, it reminds me of Lincoln took the Battle of Antietam as a sign of a providential God that he wanted those slaves to be freed. Um, Professor Schlesinger reminds me of that line about uh, S. N. Berman asking a he said asking a friend to read his play, and he's, he says, "Sam, I can't lie to you. It stinks." And Berman said, "Ah, you're a master of innuendo." <laughs> Professor Schlesinger is a master of euphemism. It reminds me of the uh, Woody Allen line about that singular villain who raped, who maimed, who pillaged, who dialed information for numbers he could look up himself. There was, <laughs> there was no end to the villainies. We are also joined Hochheit in den Zimmer. We are also joined by our distinguished guests, apart from Mr. and Mrs. Sam, old friends. We have uh, His Eminence, Father Newhouse, has joined us. And my beloved sainted colleague, Paul Sigmund, is now with us. Uh, let me introduce our, our commentators. I'll take seniority. Uh, George McKenna has been a preeminent figure. He's a professor of political science in the City College of the City University of New York. He's the editor or author of several books, including The Guide to the Constitution, The Delicate Balance, The Drama of Democracy, taking sides, clashing views on the controversial political issues. But he's known to a larger audience through those engaging essays he's done for the Atlantic Monthly, the Journal of Politics, and I'm pleased to say, First Things, where he's shown his particular art in bringing the tradition of political philosophy to bear on questions of moment in our politics. Professor McKenna. Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Arcs began by asking your indulgence for a personal story. I'll have to ask you the same. Uh, we both come from the same town, it appears. Uh, in 1957, when I was 20 years old, I was working, I had a summer job at Kraft Foods 
in Chicago, their factory. We made uh, blue cheese salad dressing. We made uh, mayonnaise. We made several varieties of jellies. And we made relish. That same summer, my sister got a book from the Book of the Month Club uh, called The Crisis of the Old Order by the historian Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. And I borrowed it from her. And I liked it so much as I was reading it that I begrudged every hour I had to spend in that factory. Couldn't wait to get home to read more of it. And uh, I, I think because of that and because I was daydreaming one day thinking about, uh, of course, the crisis of the old order was about the uh, depression in the last days of the Hoover administration. And so my mind was so much on the death throes of poor Herbert Hoover, uh, or at least the political death throes of him, that I wasn't paying any attention to what I was doing. And I turned the wrong valve on the blender and dumped uh, over 100 pounds of relish onto the uh, workplace floor. My uh, job was saved by the timely intervention of the union steward who uh, negotiated with my bosses to put me in a less risky job. <laughs> so even though Professor Schlesinger almost cost me my job uh, that summer, I'm grateful to him uh, for all the wonderful work that he's done in writing American history so vividly as he has done. And uh, uh, for subsequent books and articles that I read of him, including the works uh, that he presented us with uh, today, the chapter from his 1963 book, The Politics of Hope, and uh, an op-ed piece in the New York Times, and uh, a recent article in Playboy magazine. Unfortunately, they only sent me the text. Uh, but in any case, uh, I am uh, most indebted to him. And, uh, and, 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 and I like his feistiness, and I like his... Uh, readiness not readiness to engage um, and um, he's done that well today um, our topic is religion or rather the public place of religion is it is it best kept private in the home and places of worship uh, or is there some place for the public acknowledgement of or for want of a better word the use of uh, religion and this breaks down I think into two separate issues. Is the public expression and acknowledgement and, as it were, use of religion deeply embodied in our political legal traditions, or is America rightly considered a secular nation? And secondly, is the public place of religion helpful or hurtful to our democracy and our civil liberties? I'm going to mainly talk about number one because um, I, I have a feeling I'm going to run out of time uh, if I try to go into the second issue about whether religion is helpful to, or hurtful. But I will, I, I will try to make a little preface to that second question. Let's talk about our traditions. We can start with the Constitution. Professor Schlesinger rightly notes that the word God is found no place in the Constitution, and that is certainly true. 
there is also no mention of political parties in the Constitution. There's no mention of the President's cabinet in the Constitution. There's no mention, for that matter, of separation of church and state in the Constitution. Um, and that is because either the uh, framers of the Constitution assumed them already and assumed that they were working in an environment in which these were taken for granted, or they were derived later on from the implications of the Constitution. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, I think, was on the right track when he wrote in Democracy in America in the 1830s, if you want to understand America, you have to get beyond documents, you have to look to the manners and mores of the American people. But even on the level of documents, um, if we take Lincoln seriously, as Professor Schlesinger does, the document that is really the foundation of uh, the American Union is not the Constitution, which after all was written in order to give us a more perfect union. The document that is, the, is absolutely foundational in terms of the American people as a union is the Declaration of Independence. And there, there are four references to the uh, uh, deity. The divine providence, the creator, God, um, and other, and, and at least one other formulation, I can't remember, but they're all referenced to the uh, uh, deity. And, and beyond that, um, I think if you look over and think about the Declaration of Independence, it's written in precisely that absolutist language that seems to bother Professor Schlesinger about the Bush administration. He talks about the calm but disquieting note of certitude no nuance, no doubt. Well, there isn't much nuance and doubt in the, in the, in the statement that uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Not much skepticism there. That all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Unalienable. Uh, there's no negotiation here. There's no dialogue, it seems, with, uh, with uh, uh, those who want to take away our rights. It's, uh, it's absolutist uh, language. Uh, then there are the Founding Fathers themselves. Um, he mentions, uh, uh, Professor Schlesinger mentioned uh, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin had an interesting view. He was, he was a skeptic, but in his, in his uh, autobiography, he makes an interesting statement. He says, at one point I, I flirted with deism. Uh, and I was a deist for a while, and I stopped being a deist. He said, because whether or not deism is true, it's not very useful. Uh, and it's not useful because it's so detached. It seems to leave it up to every person how he wants to act, and that's dangerous. Uh, he, in his talk today, but uh, he did not mention Washington. Perhaps he sensed that that was a target-rich environment. Uh, but in his article in Playboy, he mentioned that Washington was a kind of nominal Episcopalian who left church before communion. Well, that's unfortunate. But uh, I did that a couple of times, too. Um, but uh, I think more to the point of our discussion today, there is Washington's farewell address where he said, and I quote, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, 
Religion and morality are indispensable supports. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Now, I could, I could multiply these statements uh, without much trouble. President after president down to 2004, uh, but I'd be yanked off this rostrum for greatly exceeding my 15 minutes of fame. So uh, I, 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 I can't do that. But one president who uh, Professor Schlesinger concedes uh, did openly express his religious views was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Frederick Douglass famously said of uh, Lincoln's second inaugural that it, it, it sounded more like a sermon than a state paper. But uh, uh, Professor Schlesinger adds that Lincoln's concept of religion was, was humble. It was open, it was non-dogmatic, and it was non-judgmental. Uh, and he um, cites from that same second inaugural where Lincoln said both sides in this war uh, read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And he, he's, he, he, the, 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 the statement, the, the implication seems to be that we really can't say which side in the war has God on his side. And uh, he adds, uh, Lincoln State, judge not lest you be judged, for the Almighty has his own purposes. Uh, all that uh, Lincoln did say, but what Professor Schlesinger leaves out are two things that Lincoln said, one right before that statement and one right after that statement. Uh, before saying that we dare not judge whose side God is on, Lincoln slipped in this little thought. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, unquote. However gently expressed, Lincoln's words leave no doubt as to whose side God was not on in this war. But there's more, and here comes the really judgmental part. This is the part that, uh, that uh, Frederick Douglass liked the best. Uh, a few moments after saying that the Lord has his own purposes, Lincoln went on to divine those purposes. I quote, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another, drawn by the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, still it must be said. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln's second, uh, second inaugural was not a tolerant sermon. It is a very harsh Jeremiah. It is saying that the war had to go on as long as it did, and it had to cost so much in ruin and so much in bloodshed, because it was the Lord's scourge for the sin of slavery. Everything, every drop of blood drawn by the lash, every dollar, extracted from black people over 250 years, it all had to be paid back in kind and in full. Now you see why Frederick Douglass liked that so much. In summary, both before and after Lincoln, presidents have 
felt free to cross back and forth across the line between religion and politics and to look at their nation in providential terms, whether it was Lincoln saying that America is the last best hope of Earth, whether it was Wilson seeing the nation on a providential mission to make the world safe for democracy, whether it was FDR talking about rendezvous with destiny, or JFK saying that the rights of man come not from the generosity of st the state, but from the hand of God, and then proclaiming that there was a new uh, generation bent upon a crusade to protect those rights everywhere in the world. Uh, presidents have never forgotten to bring the Bible with them when mounting the bully pulpit. Uh, and Ron Reagan, notwithstanding, his own father and Jimmy Carter and uh, Bill Clinton, certainly, have never hesitated to wear religion on their sleeves when the occasion calls for it. And uh, if uh, Bush does it, there is ample precedent. I, I would resist the uh, contention that there's something unique about uh, uh, Bush, except for the, uh, not even the fact that he is a born-again Christian, because as you know, Jimmy Carter made no hesitation in proclaiming that. Uh, in Playboy magazine, too. And, uh, and if Jimmy Carter had a conversion experience 25 years ago, John Kerry seems to have had a conversion experience in the last week. Uh, I heard him yesterday saying that he will bring religion with him in the White House and it will guide his decisions. So um, I think that uh, there's not really the uniqueness uh, that Professor Schlesinger finds in, in, uh, in George Bush's uh, attitude toward the public role of religion. Now, is this kind of thing good or is it bad? That's the question I, I will end with. And as I said at the beginning, I can't give it the kind of treatment it deserves. I can just kind of make a, a stab at a preface to uh, looking at that question. And just briefly, I would ask you to remember and reconsider the role, the enormously important role that religion has played in the various reform movements in America. The abolitionist movement was really an extension of the Second Great Awakening, and some of the stalwarts of the abolitionist movement had actually begun as revivalistic uh, speakers uh, uh, Theodore Dwight Well uh, pops into mind quickly, but many others uh, could easily come to mind. Uh, they were, many of them, students of the redoubtable Charles Grandison Finney, uh, the, 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 great, uh, the great revivalist of the early 19th century, and they carry that with them into their, into their crusades. Some of them became secular later on, but they still had the same, were infused with the same religious spirit with which they began. Movements later in the 19th century for economic justice, the populist movement, the progressive movement, the social gospel movement, the women's suffrage movement, all of them uh, you can find suffused with Judeo-Christian religion. Uh, William Jennings Bryan's Cross of Gold speech is full of fire and brimstone and reads like a revivalist track, which in a way it was. And can we forget the civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s, a movement coming out of black churches in the South, 
the, the wonderful oratory of Martin Luther King being basically sermon oratory and unhesitatingly invoking uh, religion in the, in, the, in the process. His letter from a Birmingham jail uh, quotes St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine as much as it does anything from the Declaration of Independence. And uh, so I think that uh, it's a mistake to assume that uh, uh, religious absolutism has in it inherently something that is malevolent or dangerous to our democracy. Well, in fact, I would maintain the opposite, that uh, uh, there, is, uh, there are some very good arguments, and I can't go into them here, uh, that uh, suggest that it is a good it is a bolster for democracy. Let me just briefly, uh, in whatever time I have left, which I don't think is very much. I think we're going to have to wrap it up. Uh, we're going to have to wrap it up. So, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, well, let me just wrap it up then on a on a positive note because I think that religion does serve as a positive inspiration to change and to renewal, to bettering ourselves as a nation. As Reinhold Niebuhr put it in a quote for which I am once again grateful to Professor Schlesinger, the kingdom of God is not of this world, yet its light illuminates our tasks in this world, and its hope saves us from despair. To which I am inclined to say, Amen. Thank you very much. and found sanctuary at Villanova in Pennsylvania. Um, she received her MA and PhD in government from the University of Notre Dame, where she really is a rising star in political theory. She was also associate director of the Erasmus Institute. I see her occasionally in Washington, where she's been a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, she's published pieces on Christianity and politics, democratic theory. She's currently at work on a book on Catholic and Protestant contributions to civil society. I also knew her late father, and she was a classmate of Georgetown with my son, Jeremy, so it's a professional and personal pleasure to welcome her here. Such a privilege to be here and to comment on Professor Schlesinger's work. I didn't encounter him in the 1950s. <laughs> I encountered him in the late 1990s as I was writing a dissertation on Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, and his work is fabulous. Um, like Professor McKenna, I also had the opportunity to read several of his pieces in advance of his lecture today, including the piece in Playboy. And it occurred to me when I was reading it that uh, that particular venue has a readership of probably 3,000 times any journal that I've ever published in. <laughs> so, Dr. Schlesinger makes quite a remarkable statement that George Bush is the most aggressively religious president in American history and then asks, provocatively, is this a good thing for democracy? Is it a good thing for religion? And of course, his answer is a resounding no. He catalogs several features of Bush's presidency that reflect what he considers a problematic blending of religion and politics. He cites Bush's public references to his personal religiosity, his confidence that his presidency is marked by divine appointment, and his appeal to divine guidance on political issues. 
Dr. Schlesinger's first objection recalls Teddy Roosevelt's opposition to the motto, In God We Trust, on our nation's money. As he himself has written, this opposition was not constitutional, but rather aesthetic, that there was something unseemly about such references. Um, they trivialize religion, and so they're problematic on that score. But Dr. Schlesinger reserves his most serious criticism for what he characterizes as Bush's practice of applying a religious test to public policy. And he finds confirmation of this in the remarks of Richard Land of the Southern Baptist Convention, who said, I don't think there's any question that his faith is absolutely determinative for his decision making. Schlesinger finds disturbing evidence of religiously influenced judgments in several policy areas, the war in Iraq, faith-based initiatives, embryonic stem cell research, and what he characterizes as Bush's rigid opposition to abortion. In each of these instances, Bush has failed to draw what he calls a bright line between secular and religious activities. Dr. Schlesinger's argument rests on this distinction. My question to him today would be, is this in fact a viable distinction? Can our political concerns be so neatly separated from our religious? Various examples from American political history, uh, several of which Dr. McKenna has referenced, suggest otherwise. But some of these examples are recent. I will uh, likewise recur to John Kerry's example. Uh, now, the contradictions surrounding his claim notwithstanding, he did say unequivocally in the third debate, quote, everything you do in public life has to be guided by your faith, end quote. And he specifically references the issues of poverty and the environment there. So too, as Dr. McKenna has pointed out, Martin Luther King's political activism was born of clear Christian conviction. And in fact, he had, like George W. Bush, a sense that he was responding to a divine call. Uh, King was involved in a prophetic mission and uh, gave example of a prophetic witness. The letter from a Birmingham jail, I think, is perfect here. The epistemic clarity of King's position, it seems to me, was precisely yielded by religious insights. And as McKenna pointed out, we have one of the most famous documents in American letters relying upon such notable Christian thinkers as Augustine and Aquinas, uh, not in terms of their understanding of God, though that might have been there too, but rather for their understanding of law and political action. Right? So it was a distinctly political uh, application. Would Dr. Schlesinger raise a similar objection in these cases? Now, it is on the gravest matters in public life that Bush's faith-based politics is especially troubling to our speaker. These are the issues of life and death. It seems to me that it's precisely here that the strict distinction between secular and religious breaks down, because these issues inevitably implicate one's vision of the cosmos, or of what Reinhold Niebuhr called the nature and destiny of man. So too, it seems to me, does Schlesinger's implicit restriction on the public discourse of religious believers break down here. When these matters are the subject of public law, 
I would argue it's reasonable that citizens, including public officials, puzzle over difficult questions with all the resources at their disposal. Theological resources, theological resources are especially apt here as they shed light on the meaning of life and death. I would say, too, that in their democratic deliberations, citizens and legislators may legitimately invoke confessional discourse, that is to say, a discourse that reveals religious or non-religious comprehensive doctrines relevant to the issue at hand. This is with respect to properly political goals. So their advocacy can be informed publicly by religious insights. And when I say uh, properly public or political goals, I'm suggesting that religious believers are bound by the same constraints as any other democratic citizen in their advocacy, which is to say they, they are not permitted on account of their uh, religious views to advocate a purely sectional interest that's in conflict with the public interest. I would stay away from the language of sectarian here because I think that's prejudicial, but a sectional interest. Nor can they publicly advocate on issues that are intramural to religious or secular organizations. Now, when they spell out what changes they see as required in law and public policy by their confessional beliefs, they will no longer be speaking in a confessional mode. As Jonathan Chaplin has argued, they will not at that point be articulating the deeper source of their political views. Though in doing so, and here is where I would take issue with Dr. Schlesinger, in doing so, they will not have cut loose from their confessional beliefs and entered some kind of freestanding realm of discourse. Rather, they will simply be stating what are the political outworkings of that deeper source. Dr. Schlesinger has also said that Bush's faith-based presidency exhibits absolutist or black and white thinking. And he finds this especially troubling because it runs afoul of democratic constraints, such as negotiation and compromise. I would ask our speaker, how would he distinguish between Bush's absolutist thinking and other appeals to foundational moral principles? What's the difference here? Does Bush's opposition to abortion and embryonic stem cell research differ in kind from the forceful opposition to slavery or discrimination exhibited by the abolitionists and women suffragists. In both cases, it seems to me, we have a theologically informed appraisal of a moral evil and a corresponding resolution to defeat it by a number of means, with the ultimate goal that this foundational moral principle about the human person be enshrined in public law. Now, it's important to note that the epistemic clarity claimed by these different advocates is not a comprehensive claim of infallibility. These, it seems to me, can coexist. Just as Niebuhr observed with respect to the Second World War, the Allies had a moral and a religious imperative to fight Nazism. He has this one especially stirring reflection that were we not to enter we would have to face Christ on the judgment day, and we would stare in the faces of millions of Poles uh, and German Jews whom we had not come to assist. It's quite a stunning uh, remark. 
This does not, however, uh, indicate, right, the moral and uh, religious imperative does not indicate sinlessness on, on behalf of the protagonists. At the very same time, they could recognize their own role, let's say, in the creation of the menace itself. And so Reinhold Niebuhr has very stern words to say about the punitive terms of the Treaty of Versailles and its role in creating the Nazi menace. So in conclusion, I would ask, is Dr. Schlesinger's primary objection to Bush's views their religious derivation, or is it more fundamentally the substance of the positions themselves? Depending upon the answers to these questions, we would find ourselves engaging in a different set of arguments. Thank you. What could be better than friends piling on? Um, I would just reiterate, take one line back from the, the introduction. When, when Professor Schlesinger mentioned Jefferson. Now, Jefferson prayed that every young man then alive would die a Unitarian. Uh, but he also had that worry that people would lose the sense that these rights we had, these liberties, were the gifts of God that we, if we gave them to ourselves, then we could take them away ourselves. And so one of our questions again is, who, what is doing the heavy lifting of that God of Israel to explain why that broken man in the gutter is still someone we think has an intrinsic dignity, the source of rights of an intrinsic dignity. And the 17-year-old Hamilton in that marvelous pamphlet said the great mistake of Hobbes was that he ruled out the notion of a superintending principle, the source of a moral law antecedent to civil society altogether. That gave us the conviction that those moral principles were there. And of course, Madison's saying it's a critical ground for citizens in a republic, that they enter a republic with an awareness, with a respect for a law outside themselves. Well, we put many things on the table, but I know from listening to him for 40 years, <laughs> he's, he's perfectly up to dealing with whatever he wishes to deal with. Professor Schlesinger. I appreciate the kindness and the civility and the intelligence of, your, of the commentators. And Dr. Heffernan remarked about, reminded us about Theodore Roosevelt's opposition to In God We Trust, which was unavailing because Congress in 1907 or 8, passed a law inscribing our coinage as she said, the my uh, TR's objection was aesthetic rather than profound because the in the, in the 1890s, bars were often 
said in bar rooms they're hung with signs saying in God we trust all others pay cash <laughs> I think the uh, you've gotten from this the sense of the ambiguity of the interpretation for example, Jefferson did indeed write uh, on, 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 uh, that God, but he, he detested the priesthood. And he detested what Christianity, he purged the New Testament of miracles. He detested the institution of the church. Madison, too, the author of the Statute of Religious Liberty in Virginia. On the one hand, they, you can cite Jefferson and Lincoln for uh, one purpose, and you can cite, you can find contradictory statements. But that's uh, the human nature and uh, political nature, particularly. I have not done justice in my remarks to the creative, to the role of, of uh, religious cre cre creating climates of opinion. And uh, I mentioned abolitionism, progressivism, civil rights and in that sense it's it's uh, but I what I worry about is what Justice Robert H. Jackson called compulsory godliness and uh, I think there are all too many instances of that today but what is unique about the Bush presidency is their mobilization of voters through churches. And the, the New York Times story, which I read excerpts from, represent a mood of exploitation of religion for purposes of mobilizing voters. Woodrow Wilson though he was an intense figure, religiously intense figure, did not use the church churches for voter mobilization, nor did Jimmy Carter, who was born again. But I think the Bush is, has crossed the line in the way he sought to mobilize voters, he seeks to mobilize, to use churches to mobilize voters. And I would like, I would challenge any previous president, uh, challenge our commentators to name any previous president who has done this to such an extent. Thank you.
to the looks of Parliament, I've seen some of the faces. I have to explain something about many of us accept invitations to trek across the country, um, worried, worried about dashing through traffic, running through airports, worried about missing trains. We take a whole day getting somewhere, and when we, we arrive, the moderator says, try to keep it to 12 minutes. Uh, I was not going to tell Professor Schlesinger, wrap it up, kid. I'd rather have to sort of take time from the audience rather than take time from our speakers. That was the style of the moderation here. The principal. But, but, but the man in charge says we can have about 10 minutes for discussion. Uh, he wants me to, well, he suggests you use the uh, Hebraic method and compress your questions by omitting the vowels. <laughs> we're, we're open. Uh, how do you do, do you have people just stand up? And, uh, yeah, people can stand up and Okay. Very seeking clarification from Professor McKenna and Hefferman. I feel that there is a crosstalk. The speaker and you two respondents are not on the same wavelength. The speaker is talking the public square, means American government. And you two are means uh, public square. It's a civil society, like mm. the church. The whole difference between Martin Luther King, our abolitionist, and George Bush is that those people are in Birmingham jail and George Bush is in the White House. And that makes the whole difference. Uh, in, that's an important distinction between, between political... The speaker and you are talking about different public squares. If I may, that's an important distinction, right? And so I referenced Martin Luther King because he was a political activist. Uh, this was absolutely, you're right. Uh, but that's why I also referenced John Kerry, uh, and Professor McKenna referenced Lincoln. And the, the important point there would be that for someone like Kerry, his religious views, uh, as he now claims, will be decisive in terms of his political decision making. Right, the kinds of laws he will sign, the, the kinds of legislation he will have his uh, confers propose in the Congress. So it does, in other words, have distinct political and legal meaning for him. That's, that would be my point. But you're quite right about the distinction. Um, since I hogged so much time when I was up, I'm going to answer very briefly. Um, I, I uh, agree with Jean that there's um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, th there is a distinction between the two, but, th but in, in practical life there's a lot of blurring of the two. And uh, whether it's George Washington's rhetoric uh, insisting that religion is important or Abraham Lincoln's official proclamation of Thanksgiving, which was full of references to the deity, or whether it's George Bush's faith-based initiatives, or a whole host of other places where these two intersect, I don't think you can, in fact, make the distinction that you make so nicely uh, in philosophy. So I, I don't think the term public square is, um, is uh, I don't think that we were on uh, different tracks. Uh, I think that the two do very much intersect in real life. Question. Uh, Father Newhouse worked with uh, Martin Luther King. I guess I, I pose this question later. Do I, do I understand correctly when Dr. King was offering his sentiments grounded in religious understanding, he was offering them as the basis for a public policy, 
that would indeed be treated as binding for the rest of the country. Other questions? Mr. Speaker, also feel that uh, George Bush has the line? No. <laughs> I would give a qualified yes on that. Um, with respect to the aesthetic question, uh, and this, this could be idiosyncratic to my personality, but it, it does, um, uh, because matters of God are so profound, uh, and, and we should have such reverence for them, it does make me a little skittish uh, when, if folks uh, routinely reference um, the work of God. Now, I would say more specifically with respect to Bush, I was troubled by his remark that Christ was his favorite political philosopher, uh, because I think that that's a category mistake. So. <laughs> uh, I think I had uh, over here, this gentleman over here. I think it's a political question, and uh, I think, I believe that the great strength of democracy, the great virtue of democracy, is its capacity for self-correction. I can see Chris Wolf over there. If we assume subjective sincerity uh, in trying to get support from people who share your views, what is there to distinguish exploiting other people uh, to, to get their support and trying to get people who agree with you to work for the same things you want to work on. Exploitation is a, a kind of loaded word, but I mean, but what really distinguishes, assuming that Bush is sincere and that he agrees to the evangelicals, why is that exploitation rather than people who agree on something working together for it? I, th I think that President Bush has exploited his connections with the conservative evangelical churches more systematically than any pre previous president, which is why I call him the most aggressively religious president in American history. I doubt whether my commentators would say that there was a more aggressively religious president. But, Professor, I take the question to mean, if he systematically appeals to people who agree with him, how is that exploitation? I, 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 it is not exploitation, but the organization of voters, mobile, mobilization of voters, is a unique contribution to the president by President Bush. Uh, Dan Maloney had a question. Any other questions people I'm not seeing over here? Dan Maloney? Uh, 
So with, uh, you know, what do, do you think of that as a precedent for some of the theorization going on on the other side today? Almost even some of the same people who, you know, the Democrat Baptists who are not black and white. The Democrats have, have Al Sharpton, the Republicans have Jerry Falwell, and they're not regarded by the laity as men of the cloth. They're regarded as con men. <laughs> um, uh, I can't believe that Eric Osborne does not have a question. Eric Osborne, Amherst, class of 04, now at the Princeton Seminary. Yeah. Just the question we need when we have 30 seconds to go. <laughs> uh, right. Who wants to go after that one? Jean? George? Robbie? Louise? Chris? Father Noah? Go on. Go on. Well, I, I would just say, uh, just a historical point, that, that uh, the business about communion, reception of communion and uh, potential excommunication is not uh, just a contemporary issue. Uh, think about Archbishop Rummel from the uh, late 1950s, early 60s, excommunicating uh, prominent politicians in Louisiana uh, with respect to their views, their extreme views on segregation, uh, extreme racist views. So that's not new. And I, I would submit that that action uh, on the part of the hierarchy is not actually a violation of church and state, as some commentators have claimed, but is actually a work of charity. You have to understand it as the work of a theological virtue. Here's one place where I do believe in separation of church and state. John Kerry can do what he pleases, and the uh, bishops and archbishops can do what they please. Uh, I think it's, it's enormously hip hypocritical on the part of the news media. If you go back 40 years, how much they applauded Archbishop Bishop Rummel for excommunicating Leander Perez and others who were flouting church teaching on uh, the uh, race relations, uh, how he, uh, Rummel, got an hour with Dan Rather, uh, got a congratulatory piece in Time magazine, got all kind, and, and then 40 years later when they're not doing anything as extreme as excommunication and they haven't even uh, reached a unified policy as to whether they should be de denied communion, there's this horror, horror at uh, church interference uh, in, the, in political matters. It's, it's, it's hypocrisy and it's a lot of baloney. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we have to wrap it up. So I'm afraid we're going to have to save that question framed for another time, Paul Sigmund. Um, when Professor Schlesinger invoked Mr. Dooley, I'm tempted to adapt the line of Mr. Dooley and say, when I see Professor Schlesinger walking down the street with Bob Schrum, I know the recording angel's going to need another bottle of ink. <laughs> um, the... Uh, well, 
the mention of Benjamin Franklin moves me to this uh, closing story. It recalls to me Evelyn Waugh visiting this country in the 30s, getting off a ship accosted by reporters who said, once said, what do you think, Mr. Waugh, of um, uh, Will Rogers' observation that the purpose of art is to entertain, not instruct? And Waugh said, this Mr. Rogers you mentioned, is he, is he dead or alive? <laughs> he said, well, he's dead, of course. Waugh said, well, he knows better now. In <laughs> <laughs> due course, we will all know better. Join me in thanking the panel and Professor Schlesinger. Thank you very much, uh, Professor uh, Arcus. Uh, and thank you to our panelists, uh, George uh, McKenna and Jeannie Heffernan. But let me say a special word of thanks uh, to our distinguished uh, opening speaker, Professor Arthur uh, Schlesinger. Uh, Professor, I want you to know how honored we are in the Madison program and at Princeton uh, to have you with us and uh, for your uh, opening of our conference. Thank you very, very much. Please join me again. Thank you.